We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're brought up to believe that love should come naturally. So if you're struggling, it means you haven't found the right person yet. If you're in a committed relationship, but the love disappears and you end up feeling, I love you, but I'm not in love with you, you probably made the wrong choice and there's someone out there who would make a better match. Except after 35 years helping couples make better relationships, I know from professional and personal experience that love is beautiful, but it can also be really difficult, sometimes at the same time. So my question today is, how do you stay in love? And if it does not come naturally, what do we need to know and what skills do we need in our toolbox? My witness is Dr. Cheryl Fraser, who is both a Buddhist and a sex therapist, or to be more precise, a Buddhist sex therapist, and the author of Buddha's Bedroom, Mindful, Loving Path to Sexual Passion and Lifelong Intimacy. She has a podcast with the intriguing name of Sex, Love and Elephants, and online she has a workshop for couples called Create Love That Lasts a Lifetime. So, You were a true believer in love with a capital L when you were young. Tell me all about it. Well, I don't know how well the UK audience will remember Sean Cassidy, but he was the American pop idol that, Andrew, I was absolutely convinced was my soulmate. Wasn't he David Cassidy's younger half-brother or something like that? Well, I find that mildly offensive. I'd like to say that David Cassidy was Sean's older brother. He was my soulmate. Oh don't 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 relegate him to the lesser of the two. I'm sorry, but in the UK, that it was definitely a David Cassidy territory rather All than right. the other way around. But right. but I'm sure that the world over, they really preferred Sean. So tell me about your relationship with Sean. Well, it was absolutely magnificent. I had the most incredible imaginary love affair with him, including an erotic awakening love affair as well as a young teen girl. And he was my soulmate and he was meant to come to Vancouver Island, not exactly the hotbed of Hollywood superstars, by the way, and sweep me off my feet and carry me off to Beverly Hills, where we were going to do what? Where we're going to live happily ever after. And I'd like everybody listening to think, and this is when I ask people this, they come up with it very quickly. Who was your first big crush, particularly a musician, a pop star, a woman you saw on the poster or a man you saw on the poster in your room, depending on your preferences? Do you recall who yours was? Yes, but unfortunately, it's going to be incredibly British (laughs) that uh, we used to have a television program called Top of the Pops, where the likes of David Cassidy, um, in fact, once flew over and performed live at Heathrow's on this particular show. But for the artists that wouldn't fly over, they would have a group of young ladies called Pan's People, and they used to do interpretive dance to these songs, normally terribly literal. <laughs> so, you know, if the song if the song was Get Down, you know, they were pointing their fingers at people to try and get them to get down, and it was all sort of something here, here, here in my heart as they banged <laughs> on their hearts. But they were a very delicious young ladies, and the cameras used to linger very lovingly. 
being the 70s and you know it was perfectly okay to look you know down girls cleavages and mm-hmm. etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah those are very special moments really aren't they we will honor them and to your question you know i believed passionately and deeply in love and although i'm a bit tongue in cheek with Sean Cassidy, it's a really, really important moment for most of us, I think, when at some point we realize that our soulmate either doesn't exist or isn't going to show up in the way we imagine they will to bring this perfect love to us to keep us happily ever after. And so I went on a journey and was always very interested from that age of about 12 years old. What is love? Why doesn't it work? Would really have been my young question. And now at 58 years old, it's often the question I, like you, I'm asking people and myself all the time. Why is love such a hard gig? Why isn't it easier when we commit to someone for the long term? At least that's our initial preposition. Why is it so bloody hard to stay in love? You know, I think you've co-opted this brilliant phrase that a lot of us in the field tend to use for one of your, your terrific books. You know, I love you, dot, 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 but I'm not in love with you anymore. So Sean Cassidy becomes that image for, I believed it would all happen. It would be more or less perfect and it would be fairly easy and it would last forever. Spoiler alert, not the case. <laughs> so... What were your early relationships like then if you were bringing Mm. that model Mm. into it? Well, you know, from the extensive clinical and just personal experience of women and men sharing their own sexual and romantic histories with me, I have a beautiful and rare early romantic actual flesh and blood history. My first major boyfriend I was with for five years. He was my first sexual partner. I was very clear. I had a lot of sexual passion in me. I I had an early and healthy sexual masturbation life. My first sex toy was my Snoopy electric toothbrush. Full disclosure, (laughs) I was a curious young girl. (laughs) And um, so I was fairly easily orgasmic and had this huge heart and wanted love and yet I chose for my own reasons, which which I would like to go back and, and, and thank myself for, to not become sexual with a partner till I was ready, until it was some level of commitment, until I loved that person. So my boyfriend, Eric, was five years older than me, and he was not a virgin, but he was patient, loving, kind. I had a wonderful first relationship, a wonderful slow movement at my pace with a supportive, loving guy into sexuality pretty soulmatey, ironically, right? You know, he had he had blue eyes, the, the color of the sea, and he had spiky punk rock hair. You know, I was running around Vancouver Island thinking I was a punk rocker in the late 70s and early 80s, listening to the Pistols and, you know, yelling anarchy without any idea what that meant. But anyway, but I also had this restless longing and seeking, and I would now maybe define it as a a spiritual or an existential quest going on. So rather than do what my soulmate template would have predicted, which would be to settle down with this great guy who I was with to my early 20s, I didn't. I found reasons why it wasn't working. I had retrospectively abandonment issues and insecurity, and I couldn't trust this very solid love I was being offered. And so we split up more at my uh, impetus than his, and I, and I you know, careened through the next decades partly consciously and subconsciously trying to find the soulmate, even though I already believed it didn't really exist, and just trying to figure out why love is so hard, why we don't do better at walking through life together in a longer-term way, if that's the model we choose, in a way that's more uh, 
compatible, fun, more passionate, more exciting. So that's just been the quest um, for myself and also in whatever way I can, like you do, to help educate and inspire and reassure other people struggling with the very same wildly human issues. Love that lasts a lifetime. Why isn't it easier? Should I stay? Should I go? All these things. And somehow we have this message that love is the answer and that actually if you love somebody and, you know, and then I'm going to put that truly, deeply, madly love them, then all those other problems will somehow melt away. Mm-hmm. But that love is not the answer. <laughs> I mean, that's a horrible thing for, for me and you to say, but love is not the answer. Explain what you mean when you write that. Depends on the question. But love is not the answer to happiness. And there we'll, we'll take a slight shift into more of a Buddhist philosophical point of view, echoed by other, you know, wonderful ways of thinking. But happiness is an inside job. Whether or not I'm happy is not actually based on the events or the objects around me. Let me give a really simple example. We're both recording this uh, in different parts of the world right now in our studios or our home studios. I don't know whether or not you have a car parked outside, but let's pretend you do. My car is parked outside my home and my studio here. Let's say after we finish this interview, we each need to go run some errands. We go up to our car and our car's been smashed. It's been vandalized. Looks like someone's taken a sledgehammer to it for whatever random reason. That event has now happened. We both know it's happened. Now, how are we going to feel about it? Well, most likely upset or worse. Fair point. But we can't undo the event, right? The event of the car now being smashed has actually nothing to do with whether you and I remain happy, content, alive, and gracious in that moment. It's our reaction to the event. Now, we know this, but most of us don't act that way very often, including myself. I'm a human being. So we go up, we see the smashed car, and I really like my car. It's a Mazda Miata sports car, and it's red, and it's sexy, and it's lovely. I'm a wee bit Mm. attached to my car. But if I went up and it was smashed to bits, honestly, I'd be a little shocked, taken aback. I'd have a bit of emotion, maybe anger, a bit of anxiety. Who the heck did that? How did that happen? But it is completely up to me. Back to this phrase, happiness is an inside job. It's up to Cheryl and my mind to then be happy or not happy despite the event, right? So I can go on to have a wonderful day, presumably phone the insurance company or a tow truck, deal with the minutia of life that needs to be dealt with. But that event has no power over my mind, my happiness, my sense of self, other than the power I give it. So we live, majority of us, moment to moment, hour to hour, day to day, year to year, seeking things to make us happy, whether it's a gorgeous iced latte, it's a hot day here right now, whether it's a kiss, whether it's a new lover, whether it's a better orgasm, whether it's a nicer car, whether it's, I'm a little restless, I'm vaguely discontented in this moment. I'll I'll, I'll pick up my phone and scroll. I'll call a friend. And this object seeking is one of the terms uh, we use in in Buddhist philosophy. Uh, We can just call it, you know, wanting to feel good right now, being bored, being restless, seeking something else to then deliver happiness. Well, you can hear, I hope fairly easily, how that transfers to love and relationship. You know, if you're my partner, um, I want you to be just a bit different or maybe a lot different. I want you to be more romantic or less needy or surprise me more often or, or, or be better in bed. No offense, Andrew. Don't have any intel on that. We won't go there. Um, <laughs> but from the tiniest moment, you get up and, ah, uh, 
Andrew, you know, could you put your toast crumb plate in the dishwasher, love? In that moment, I'm creating in my own head a moment of discontent, a moment of disconnect. Now, if it was your first sleepover and we were falling in love and you left your crummy toast plate on the counter, I think it was adorable. It wouldn't bother me most likely, right? In fact, you'd probably think it was really rather cute that I was so sort of spontaneous and I was wanting to come mm-hmm. straight back to bed and I didn't worry <laughs> about the toast crumbs at all. Yes, exactly. And that, of course, is a beautiful way for us to illustrate together here. The difference there isn't in the toast plate or Andrew's leaving it in a place Cheryl doesn't prefer for it to be left because also there's no one correct place leave the plate. There's Cheryl's view, which is in the bloody dishwasher, and yours, which is wherever I drop it, I'll probably get to it later. Nobody's wrong. Nobody's right. But we both know, and it becomes far more painful than a joke, couples who have broken up over those sorts of moments and the story going with it. Andrew doesn't respect me. He doesn't care about my time. He takes me for granted and so on. And I can never do anything right for Cheryl. You know, and even if I did manage to do that, she'd have 300 other things on her list that I would do. So it's pointless doing anything. Right, right. And so if we go back to the falling in love phase, what I call the thrill phase, talk about that briefly in a bit, the the way I chunk relationship into the three keys to passion. But one of them is thrill, which is that falling in love feeling, the excitement, the butterflies, the apparent ease of you and I talking endlessly about everything, my interest in you, the effort we put out to, you know, wear nice underwear and rearrange our whole week for that one window you and I can actually get together for a date or an encounter or or whatever it is. And, you know, the benign, loving, warm acceptance of toast plate crumbs, etc. That thrill is for the majority of us in our earlier stage of our relationships, not for everybody, but for the vast majority, it's quite easy. Falling in love is easy, I like to say. Falling in love is easy. Staying in love takes mindfulness. So you're going to talk about the uh, three elements we need Mm. for love? Yes, here we go. All right. I call them the three keys to passion. And the visual and the teaching tool I use, people can just visualize very quickly and easily, I hope, is the passion triangle. So if you visualize an equilateral triangle, all three sides are the same. And my engineering geek friends tell me that that is the strongest structure on which to build the most heavy base. Yep, they use it for bridges. Yeah, so I wasn't aware of that till my, my, my brainiac friends told me that. And so don't we want to build our relationship on the strongest possible foundation, the passion triangle? At the bottom of the triangle, I'd like people to visualize the word intimacy. I'm going to define that in a moment because I define it a bit differently than you might think. On the left side is the word thrill. I've talked a little bit about that just now, falling in love, excitement, focused, you know, locked and loaded on each other, really wanting to impress and delight each other. And on the third side of that triangle, the right side, I would put the word sensuality. Sensuality. So I call these the three keys to passion or the three keys to great relationship. Intimacy, thrill, and sensuality. This is the base I use with the couples in my online immersion program and elsewhere. The simple version of this is we I hope, I'm going to use the word should, not my favorite word, but should strive to be strong in all three of these areas if we want that more sustainable, flexible, falling in love and kind of reviving love over and over again. Now, intimacy, 
a lot of people use that word as a euphemism for sexuality. That's a wonderful way to use it. But the way I define it here is more marital friendship, the psychological aspect of relationship, communication, learning to manage conflict, learning to fight fair, that sense of knowing each other and being known that you've got my back. You're the first person I want to call when something goes wrong. Some bloody idiot smashed my Miata up. And you're the first person I want to call with the great news to share it. And the little minutia of life, what we'd call a good old relationship stuff, you know, compatibility, working together as a team, raising the kids, paying the mortgage. But with this you and I intimacy that we really are close, we understand each other well, we keep updating and reviving that connection. We have meaningful conversations forever, not just in those first flushes of dating. My first date with my husband, and we've been together 10 years now, it's our 10th anniversary of that date this weekend, was um, I didn't really want to go on the date. It was a blind date and I was trying to get it over quick so I could move on and never see him again. So I said, well, sure, I can meet you for breakfast at 7 a.m. Figuring he'd say, no way, no way, lady. He said, sure, I'll be there. I said, damn. So there I went, 7 a.m., figure, you know, breakfast, 45 minutes, Andrew, in, out, boom. Four hours later, Mm. the conversation, the intrigue, and there was a second date, and apparently it's going all right. Mm. That's also intimacy, just that knowing. But how many people have those four-hour meandering? focused, mindful, alive, charged with sensual tension, conversations in year four or in year 44. So intimacy, what you and I would probably just call really good relationship skills. Thrill, I've talked about excitement, passion, adventure. That one tends to die off more quickly. We can go Mm -hmm. into why. You've probably talked about it plenty in your podcast, but changes in physiology, changes in how we view things. And what I call, we end up in relationship or marriage incorporated. We're running our business well, but not necessarily connecting as a couple. And we often use novelty really as a thrill. And novelty obviously is going to wear out because, you know, I've heard your story about Sean Cassidy a (laughs) hundred times by now. (laughs) Fair point. Fair point. And yet we can circle back or not. But one of the things I challenge couples to do, all the couples I work with, is create novelty right? Uh, There's some great research. I'll briefly skim through it. It's by a guy called Don Dutton. It's really old research. But they did this experiment where there's a suspension bridge outside Vancouver. And it was at the time, I think, the longest and highest and scariest suspension bridges in North America. So this fellow designed an evil experiment, as we psychologists do, where he had an attractive female research assistant stand at the end of the bridge. And when, you know, men of a certain age, age range, probably 20 to 30, had walked across the bridge, the woman approached them and asked them a few benign questions about something like, we're researching the health of the water in in this area. We'd like to ask you three questions. And they're okay. They answered the questions. And then she said, this is way before cell phones, internet, whatever, 25 or so years ago. She said, "Um, if you've got any questions about the water research, here's my number. You can call me at the lab. They replicated the experiment, as we do, we evil psychologists, in the parking lot with another set of random guys who had yet to walk across the suspension bridge. So the measurable factor of interest was after walking across a scary suspension bridge, you're in a more aroused, excited, physiological state than when you're just getting out of your car to do this thing. What they found was wildly more of the single guys presumably called this woman 
under the auspices of hearing about the really boring water research if they'd walked across the suspension bridge. So the implication of the research is when we do something exciting, we find someone more attractive. And there's other good research to support this. Esther Perel, a brilliant psychotherapist and couples therapist you know don't know about, colleague and friend of mine, she talks about watching your partner in their zone of genius. You know, like watching them record their podcast if they're good at that, watching them, you know, chair a meeting at a bank, but where they're in their power, where they're doing what they do well. So creating novelty and seeking it out. So we can, it's not easy. I'm not, you know, like you, I don't give out pat quick fixes because they don't work, but we can commit to saying, how am I going to find you interesting again? What circumstances can we go on an adventure date? where we do something different. It doesn't have to be bungee jumping, although it could be. It could be going to try a different restaurant with a different type of food neither of us has ever tried before. But where we create circumstances that are novel or exciting or more interesting, out of routine, out of complacency, and with those, I start to find you more attractive and more interesting. So that's a bit about that thrill side. Intimacy, communication, conflict resolution, the the glue that keeps us together in the long haul, thrill, and then sensuality. Again, I choose that word deliberately instead of the word sexuality because I talk about the entire sensual spectrum. Do you and I hold hands when we walk the dogs in the woods? Do we snuggle when we watch a show together? Do we give each other shoulder rubs or foot rubs at the end of a stressful day? Do we shower or bathe together? Do we sleep naked? If not, everybody, give it a shot again. It's an underrated way to feel a different type of sensual, you know, skin on skin, just a pleasure that is different than snuggling up in your old t-shirts and, you know, sports socks or whatever the heck we wear to bed when we're not in the throes of early impressing each other. And of course, the sensuality very much includes sexuality, all aspects of our erotic life. Do we kiss goodnight with tongue? Do we have a passionate kiss goodnight, even when we don't intend it to move into any sort of lovemaking? But those little moments that remind you and I that we are ideally still a passionate couple, whether we make love once a day or once a quarter, but that that is a sacred neglected part of long-term love for the majority of couples, our sexual life. And I'll just put out a statistic here that is so important. I try to put it out every time I'm interviewed or write anything. The research is pretty clear that around 30%, some studies it's higher, of long-term couples. And now we're defining long-term couples as together more than, say, two years. We're not just talking about people who've been together for decades. 30% or higher of long-term couples are in a sexless relationship, which is clinically defined as you make love six or fewer times a year. In other words, it's highly normal to be not having sex. And of that 30, sometimes 40% who are clinically sexless, they might make love six times a year, but the majority of them don't make love at all with each other. They might have masturbation lives, they may not. But that's so important for everybody listening to know that our sensual life takes cultivation, it takes energy, it takes scheduling sex, priority, exactly. Scheduling sex once a week or every two weeks, the amount of times don't matter. But when you're neglecting your sensual sexual connection entirely, or it's, you know, lingering on life support, you're in my view and the view of many wise people, 
you're neglecting the aspect of being in a chosen relationship if we're choosing monogamy and we're not being sexual with each other. We're neglecting arguably the one thing that sets that relationship apart from any other relationship in our current world. You can get your intimacy, conversation, depth, support, cheerleading needs met by your friends, your family, even some of your deeper colleagues. You can get your thrill needs met by your friends you go adventure mountain biking with or trekking around Nepal or to the opera or trying new Indian curry this week. If you're choosing monogamy, can't get your sensual partner needs met unless you're cultivating that anew, making it a priority with your partner. And yet people don't, they don't know how, is the gigantic unspoken thing in the room now, because we've argued about it for bloody ever, and it hurts, and we've given up. Yep, you sound like you're summarizing half of the work that uh, I do. Now, what interests me is a Buddhist sex therapist. One would imagine you're either a Buddhist nun or you're a sex therapist. How'd you become both? Well, it wasn't an option I saw on the chalkboard when we were in careers day in school, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It evolved, as things do, as part of that existential search for meaning about relationship, about life, about why aren't we happier? Happiness is an inside job, but that's not what I learned in 13 years of university studying the the best clinical psychology medical explanations for the human mind and emotions and relationships. I came up with some very lengthy, complicated explanations for why people aren't happier. And I kept looking and seeking. And when I finished my highly awarded academic career, I disappointed everybody by not taking a teaching job at an Ivy League university. And I got a backpack and I went to India and looked at the mind from a different point of view. And don't let anybody tell you that the spiritual path is easy. It's freaking dangerous. I almost stepped on a cobra during walking meditation. I didn't see the cobra until after when someone said, boy, I watched you almost step on a cobra, to which I said, why the hell didn't you warn me? But anyway, another story. I was attacked by a premenstrual monkey. That's a whole story. Came flying out of a tree and glommed onto my leg. I'm bleeding. Don't know if I need rabies shots. And the fellow who owns the monkey in very broken accented English attempted to communicate to me that monkey no like ladies when she on her blood. And I finally figured out when she was menstruating, she was really aggressive towards other females that she saw as a threat. So anyway, I'm like, would have been good to know that too. Anyway, went to India, managed to survive cobras, monkeys, and all sorts of craziness. And really immersed in something that had interested me for a while. I was probably in my early 30s by then, which is the study of the mind from a Buddhist point of view. How can we train the mind to be happy for no reason, whether the car is smashed or the car isn't smashed? Even something as dramatic as our spouse saying they don't love us anymore, they want they want a divorce. Can we cultivate an equanimity and an ability to keep coming back to a type of happiness, contentment, clarity, and compassion that Spoiler, I am not there yet. I'm certainly very far from an awake human being yet, but where we can do a better job of kind of rebalancing back to our ballast, to our center, when small and gigantic difficulties or tragedies or losses come our way. And so for a while, Andrew, I um, was developing the career as, as, you know, Dr. Cheryl, passion expert, and doing a lot of media and TV and radio. And I had a, a developed a a program at that time, a live 
weekend immersion about 15 years ago where couples would come and do the sort of work I do in the online immersion program now. And it was going very well. And I was single at the time and disillusioned with love and unable to kind of create the very thing I was helping other couples create or reignite. Oops. Yeah. Yeah. Oops, indeed. And I'm a person of integrity and I'm not a hypocrite. So I said, you know, I think it's all about chucking all of this secular life and more or less becoming a Buddhist nun. I actually contemplated taking full ordination and robes. Uh, I started doing long meditation retreats, you know, four months in a cabin off grid under the guidance of a teacher, no contact with the world at all, meditating 12 hours a day, you know, some pretty significant work on the mind. Mm. And I developed an incorrect view that I had to be either one or the other. Right. There's either the path of the spirit, the mind, not relying on comfortable objects for happiness, including a comfortable, wonderful partner, or it was chuckle that and be in secular life and chasing rainbows and hoping you catch them, which was a dumb view. But sometimes it takes a while to find your way to more wisdom, because one of the greatest, simplest teaching in, in Buddhist philosophy is the middle way. It's neither this nor that. It's neither this extreme or that extreme. It's not that Cheryl or any of us need to give it all up or throw us into a hedonistic orgy, running from pleasure to pleasure, not ever settling for a moment itself. So that's where I resurrected is an odd word, but revisited the work with couples, the passion work, and brought them together to some degree, which is in my work, really that's in the book, Buddha's Bedroom, where I bring them together more. And really just simply helping couples see that to be happy or not happy is in the mind, not in the person you're with. That's a hell of a high bar to reach. I haven't reached it. But again, if I'm annoyed with you and the bloody toast crumb plate... I'm making myself miserable. You aren't. And the toast crumbs are innocent, as is the plate. And it's my mind creating the misery based on the small or large event. And when we can even get a glimpse of that, Andrew, there's freedom in it. Because I might go, oh, Andrew and his bloody toast. And then just, I can see it. I can feel it. We can do this in cognitive behavioral psychology therapy as well. I can catch that thought of bloody Andrew and his bloody lazy ways or whatever the thought is. And I can pop it like a balloon and let it go and just think, I love my man. He's a bit sloppy with toast and put your plate away and move on. I was thinking, you know, what would be the tools in Buddha's bedroom? And I mean, I've done a little bit of Buddhism and the number one for me is non-attachment. So how could non-attachment help us not just with the toast crumbs, but with our sex life too? Well, we can each chime in here for people who are thinking non-attachment. Maybe that's not a term I have as much familiarity with. What might that mean? I'll give a quick story, allegedly, of the historical Buddha. I wasn't there that I recall, so I don't know. But he talked about, you know, if you pick up a hot coal. Now, I grew up in Canada where we used to have barbecues with coalish briquettes back when I was a kid. They took two hours to heat up. You were starving as heck before dad finally got some warm food on the table. But anyway, if you pick up a hot coal and you clench it in your fist, what happens? Well, of course, it hurts like hell. It burns. You're damaging yourself. What's the wise thing to do? We all know the answer. Let go of the coal. 
There still can be pain and after effects and healing needed. But what we tend to do when we're attached to something metaphorically is, is we pick up a hot coal. I need Andrew to love me in a certain way. I need you to not leave me. I need this promotion at work. I need to lose 10 pounds or, and, and then I'll feel good about myself, whatever it is. And we attach, we cling to that hot coal. And sometimes we're completely unaware that it's attaching and hanging on to wanting things to be a certain way that is causing so much of our misery. Again, back to the toast plate, because it's so relatable. I'm miserable about the toast plate in my mind because I'm attached to wanting it to be different, wanting you to be tidier, or my story of you be more thoughtful, or so on and so on. In that moment, as we demonstrated a few minutes ago in this recording, if I catch the thought, bloody Andrew in his bloody lazy ways, and pop it, I cease to be attached to my idea and my need that Andrew be more tidy with his plate. Now, in terms of our sex life, it seems like a heck of a leap, doesn't it? It's not really, because actually being attached to us doing sex in a certain way is going to be a bit of a problem, particularly if it's not working. But if right. actually I can get rid of that attachment, I've suddenly got this open book. Yes. You know, we could do all sorts of different things. Suddenly I've thought, well, we don't have to do it the same way. I'm not attached to the fact that, let's, for example, that it's got to be spontaneous. Yes. If it doesn't have to be spontaneous, I've no longer attached to that. We could do something else. We could. How's about this, Cheryl? Mm -hmm. We could go off this weekend with a blanket and find some hidden corner. And, well, we'll see what happens because I'm not going to be attached to exactly what the outcome is going to be. It might be a picnic. It might be something else. Who right. knows? But suddenly there's a whole range of opportunities that open up because I'm no longer attached to one, our regular way of doing things. Yes. And number two, that this trip with the blanket has to be done in a certain particular way. Yes, that is so beautiful. Look what you've done there, you clever monkey. You've brought together a bit of adventure, a bit of thrill in the, in the Cheryl model of intimacy, thrill and sensuality, a bit of surprise, but you're bringing in this profound wisdom piece we're talking about with the non-attachment of opening up also, it's novel, but it's open. It allows for curiosity. We may just find we're really tired and sleepy and we have a lovely little picnic and we snuggle up and we have a snooze in the warm sun listening to the buzzing mm. honeybees. And if I'm like, oh, I thought this was going to be a hot, crazy, fun sex encounter, I'm suffering. I'm in disappointment. I'm in judgment. I'm attached to the outcome. So it's a lovely way to put it. And for those listening who are like, you know, it's, it's winter. I'm not taking a blanket outside right now, Andrew, you silly goose. Then in your own house, schedule an erotic encounter. And the way I define that with the couples I work with and elsewhere is I don't know what that means. That might mean you lay together on the couch, fully clothed, facing each other, snuggling, and you just breathe together. But that's a sensual encounter. Your senses are engaged. We're talking here about what I might call agendaless sensuality, right? What uh, Dr. Barry McCarthy, wonderful, like the godfather of sex therapy in America, he calls it good enough sex, the good enough sex model where you allow it to wander and go where it's going to go. Now, I believe you and I are making this sound quite easy. It's not easy because we're attached to the next thing, to the orgasm or the this or getting it over with or it not hurting today or I really hope my penis stays erect or, or, or. And we're so out of the moment 
and in the future. We're so attached to driving this in a certain direction. It's one of the biggest interrupters of sensual pleasure and one of the biggest reasons a lot of people avoid it in the first place because, well, I want it to be a certain way and maybe we're older or our bodies are changing or we've been this or that or the other. It's not going to be what I want it to be, so I won't even try. Another sort of Buddhist idea that I actually sometimes wish I had enough time and maybe I should put aside the time to teach my clients is mindful meditation. Mm -hmm. Because I think one of the things that really spoils people's sex life is, you know, you and I, back to this famous example, are beginning to get hot and heavy. And I suddenly remember our argument about the toast crumbs. And immediately, my interest in, in sex is sort of disappearing out the door. Or I'm thinking about my tax return or something like that. It's actually, we sort of think passion is going to keep our mind in the bedroom, but our mind is not easily wrangled, is it? And if you do have a mindfulness meditation practice, you are much better at being able to say, okay, monkey mind, you go off there. I'm going to focus back on my touch, for example. I'm going to focus back on my fingers and feeling just how nice it feels to run my hand over your shoulders, for example. And now I'm back in my body rather than thinking about the disagreement we had over breakfast about me not putting Mm -hmm. things away. Mm -hmm. Very, very important. Very difficult for the majority of people to do. But as you've put forward, this isn't something I'll try today in our erotic date and it will all go well. And I'll be able to wrangle that mind and be present. But by putting in, you know, fairly regular practice of even 10 or 15 minutes a day and learning to show up a bit more presently, it is a longer term training. That's why I disappear for months at a time and practice for multiple hours a day. But most people aren't going to do that. That's fine. There's some great research on mindfulness and sexuality, Lori Bratto and other colleagues showing that For example, women with low sexual desire that did a, I think it was an eight-week program of one 90-minute training session a week, and then some daily practices on mindful focus touch, working with mindful mind, had an improvement in their sexual desire and their sexual responsivity. So this isn't just you and I being fanciful. There's some terrific research on the power of mindfulness in sexuality. I have a few exercises I teach for the quick and dirty version of those. They're in the book, which you can get as an ebook or just Google generally mindful sexuality exercises. Be careful, I guess, with that Google, but anyway, and find something for free. <laughs> but that where, as you've beautifully uh, illustrated it there, focus on the touch of your fingertips running along my arm over and over again. Bring that mind present, which can lead for those uh, overachievers amongst us into a study of tantric sexuality, of really learning to show up consciously in the sexual encounter with or without orgasm, with or without penetration, with or without intercourse, but really having an erotic experience with the senses, the breath, eye contact, I'd like everybody listening to do a mini self-test right now. Are you conscious at the moment of orgasm, whether it's in a solar masturbation experience or with a partner? Are you conscious? Like, well, what do you mean by that, Cheryl? I don't know if I'm conscious. Mm. What I mean is, are you involved 
in this moment now? Or like a lot of people, are you in a fantasy that helps you get to orgasm, including when you're making love with your partner? You replay one of the two or three greatest hits, Sean Cassidy, that get you there and you're not actually really making love with your partner. How many people open their eyes and have eye contact at all during sex, except maybe more in the beginning? And these are all ways to start saying, hmm, what can we do to bring more presence? And I have very good news here and an experience, a more powerful experience of pleasure and orgasm. When we're present, the sensory experience lights up. The quickest and easiest way for me to explain that, I'm a chocolate lover. Let's pretend we all love chocolate. The few that don't pick your favorite poison there. But imagine right now I had, you know, FedEx you an incredible world-class Belgian truffle before we got on camera and and Mike Mm. together. And I asked you to take the tiniest sliver, almost a crumb of this exquisite chocolate. And together we were going to place it on our tongue without swallowing, without moving, place it on our tongue. Right now Mm. I'm salivating here in Canada. And we focused simply for a moment on the texture of the silkiness on the tongue the explosion in the taste buds of those flavors, and even maybe the aroma a little bit. Now, everyone who's just imagined that, probably you're salivating. And in those few seconds, if you did it that way, you were really present with that sensory experience. Now, what people will imagine or or what they'll find out, go try this at home, is it will be one of the more powerful taste experiences of chocolate you've ever had. Now, is it because it was supersonic nuclear chocolate? No, it's the sauce of the attention, the attentiveness, the focus that explodes the sensory experience. Well, translate that to the touch along the base of your penis, of your partner's finger or tongue, the touch on your clitoris or the inside of your elbow, the focusing on, as you so wisely brought forward there, the focusing on the sensory experience is what will lead to really powerful waves of pleasure. We run through life. You and I meet at, what are they called? Michelin starred restaurants. I don't think I've ever eaten in one, but let's say we managed to get a, a reservation 12 months ahead of time. I've, I've been Okay. To Did you taste every bite of the food? The way I just described. Yes. Well done. You're a rare breed to actually be present with this. Oh my God, Cheryl. Is that, is that anise seed? What is that? What is that in there? Oh, we rarely eat like that. And then too many people would go. Most of the time we've got the TV TV on. on, We're shoveling. And I would put forward when you were at that Michelin star. Can't wait for your invite. I'll be there. I don't know if you noticed other diners and I don't know whether you noticed they were like having slow food and really present or were they more, oh, this is delicious. And then talking about their trip and talking about life. That's not a bad thing, nor is it a good thing. But when we bring presence and we slow down to any sensory experience, hearing music, birdsong, any of it, it's alive. So, huh, I challenge us all. What if we bring that kind of attention to our sexual and sensual life, at least on occasion, as one of the special Michelin-starred experiences in amongst our regular, you know, meatloaf and chips or whatever? 
The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So let me tell you about my Substack newsletter. I'd love my Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe. The newsletter is a mixture of relationship advice and my thoughts about building a meaningful life. I hope that as it grows, it's become a shared space where you can tell me your thoughts and suggest ideas for the new podcast. You can find out all about The Meaningful Life at this address, themeaningfullife.substack.com. So please do sign up. Details will be in the show notes. We'll have a recent article I wrote about why sex disappears in long-term relationships and a new study about how sex has changed over the last 30 years. And I'm afraid it doesn't make for good reading, Cheryl. (laughs) But important reading. Yes, including the fact that most women would rather give up their telephone. They'd rather give up their sex life than their telephones, which is a pretty sad reflection on life. And if you do go to my website, which is www.andrewgmarshall.com, you'll find out details about how to send a letter to us. Here is one that I've received, and Cheryl and I are going to look and see if we can help on this one. My husband of seven years, dating since 2004, has recently dropped me the I love you but bombshell when we reunited after a year of forced separation due to my job and COVID. I'm shocked and devastated, feeling extremely helpless and don't know what to do. He said he's certain that he loves me, but his feelings for me have changed after we lived apart for a year. He doesn't feel the two peas in a pod, two in one kind of intimacy with me anymore. And this is also breaking his heart. I have a strong character. I know what I want and want everything done my way. I was also a bit controlling. When I first went out with him, I think I had what some psychologists would call anxious attachment style, but I've grown to become a more secure person over the years. I don't always know what he wants or what he's thinking because he always puts my feelings first. I think sometimes he neglects his own feelings, wants and desires, especially during the first years of our relationship. He's learned to become more assertive over the years. He's also very unhappy at work. His mother and brother are very sick and go in and out of hospital. He also has his own health issues and we've not had sex regularly before my departure. Thinking back, we had all the ingredients for a crisis, but I was too focused on my career. He also acted very normally during messaging and video calls, except one time when he said he was nervous of me coming back. He said he wasn't sure if he still loves me as a romantic partner or just as a family sister. I love him dearly and I don't want us to drift apart. I tried to talk to him, but he said he doesn't have the answer. He doesn't know why he feels this way. Well, I think we recognise this dilemma. What are your thoughts, Cheryl? Well, first of all, what a lovely self-reflection this writer has given in terms of owning her part in things, not blaming, trying to figure out what can we do from here. And I'll put it in the context of the passion triangle. It sounds like this couple probably has or has had decent intimacy the way I define it. Communication, friendship, you know, running their relationship incorporated well, their life and all of those things. And the thrill has 
I wouldn't say died, they might, but it's on life support and needs to be reinvested in, finding ways to find each other interesting again. And sensuality, as she uh, bravely admits, has been really neglected. And then with a year of actually being physically separated, I would have loved them to have had a little bit of video naughtiness and sexting and keeping the passion alive and not just the text saying, I miss you, honey. I hope you have a great day. Those are really important. I send them a lot too. But the other one's saying, you know, oh, you're so sexy and I miss you and I wish you were here so I could touch you. Keeping it alive. I hear a lot of hope in that letter for the reasons I partly, you know, she's owning her part. He seems like he's got some introspective awareness and he like so many of us, gay or straight, heterosexual, trans, whatever our chosen relationship pairing, I love you, but I'm not in love with you, is a, I would say, a fundamental misunderstanding, as we've been covering today, that there is a soulmate. There's a way I should feel spontaneously horny, super intrigued with you like I used to be. We've lost that loving feeling, but we cast that and our culture super duper validates this idea that if I don't feel that way about you, you might be the wrong person or we should move on. The grass is greener. Well, the grass is greener for a few months or a year, and then it needs the same sort of tending that the old lawn did. So I would strongly encourage this couple to seek help through listening to things like this, reading great books, working in psychotherapy with a well-trained, and I'm going to put one of my biases out here now, a well-trained couples therapist who is also a sexual therapist because the majority of excellent couples therapists are not trained in sexuality and sexual desire and spontaneous versus responsive desire and such critical teachings for a couple like this, for a couple like so many of us to contextualize as we've done today, you are normal. I often say my three favorite words to say to any couple are you are normal. You are normal if you feel you've lost the loving feeling, you're not excited anymore, it's routine, we either don't have sex at all or it's mediocre. The question is, what are you willing to do about it? Are you willing to invest in your passion triangle? Seek some help if that's helpful for you. Join one of your programs, my program, something to work together to say, okay, babe, we're worth at least a final effort to see, not if we can recreate what we had, but can we move into what I call relationship 2.0 or 3.0, where we hope to reclaim or re-experience some of that excitement and passion and interest of earlier days, but moving it into, as we've been talking about so much today, can we romance each other more, date each other more, plan the blanket picnic, who knows what might happen more, schedule sex. It is very clear in the research that long-term couples, maybe minus 5% of outliers who don't schedule sex, who don't make love and intention, whether or not we're turned on, whether or not we have any desire, that's the key to a successful long-term relationship. Sexual life is make love intentional. So this is a really classic example here. And if you don't have desire when you start, 
that doesn't matter because you can pet and kiss and cuddle and the desire might turn up. And if it doesn't, then you can just do the sensual part of it. You can give each other a back massage or whatever it is. But um, if you just wait until both of you are feeling horny at exactly the same time, you are going to wait until the 12th of never, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest. Yes, I often say, and we'll just quickly give people some language here based on the research of Rosemary Basson and others. Spontaneous desire is the type we're all missing in long-term relationship and longing for. It's exactly what you said. You know, we kiss goodnight, our tongues touch, and bam, we're both hot and horny and have lots of desire and want to go. I love it. I miss it. But waiting around for spontaneous desire in long-term love is a bit like waiting around for your teenager to spontaneously clean their room. It might happen. (laughs) When it does, enjoy the hell out of it, but don't count on it. Now, this is really important research, that spontaneous desire, the kind we want. And again, we might have on occasion, and that's delightful in long-term love. Responsive desire is what you've described so eloquently there, where we schedule sex, we decide it's important, we make it a point to say, okay, tonight we're going to take an hour and have a bath and see what happens. We both might go in stone cold, not turned on. This researcher, Rosemary Bassan, has a phrase I like to repeat. She says, according to research, the majority of long-term couples start making love from a place of sexual neutrality, which means we start making love and neither of us is remotely turned on or horny. That's normal and it's okay. No, it's not wildly romantic. No, it's not what I see in the rom-coms or the erotic books, but it's real. And if through that touching and that focused mindful interest or a bit of spice or trying something new or multitude of ways to engage in our erotic life with more wisdom and presence and creativity, we then have a satisfying or even a great Michelin-starred sexual encounter, bloody hell, well done that we started even though neither of us thought we were into it at the time. So going back to our letter, one of the things I think that if you are anxious and your partner is going to know that you're anxious, and so it's very difficult for him to say things like, you know, I think I might not love Mm -hmm. you, because he's going to be very worried about your reaction. And he's going to be worried about your upset. And it sounds like he's really cued into that. And so it is really important that you do not go to that anxiety. You can feel the anxiety, be aware of it, and see if actually you can go to a place of just witnessing that anxiety. So you can say to your partner, yes, tell me more about that. Don't try and defend yourself because, you know, he will say things that will upset you. But the more he's able to talk, the more he will be able to get in touch with his feelings, which unfortunately at the very beginning are not going to be particularly nice ones. But that doesn't really matter because even if they're angry or upset, they are feelings and you can't just have the nice feelings. So you've got to do that tell me more Mm -hmm. so that he can actually tell you these things and you can hear them. Even if they're upsetting, you can report, you know, I'm really upset about that, but, you know, I'm pleased that you've told me. If you can listen to him, if you can sort of hold off having to know the answer to, you know, why has this happened? Because actually having the answer 
isn't going to be terribly helpful. What is going to be more helpful is him finding the answer. And the only way he's going to find the answer is being having the space to be able to to express himself and to think about it without having to worry about the fact that you're anxious. Mm-hmm. If you are going to be anxious, then, you know, go off and get some help from somebody else as well as your couple therapist, because, you know, this is going to be really difficult for you. You're going to need support. But the support you need is not to understand him, but to be able to just step back a little bit from your feelings so that you can be aware of them, but witness them much more than act them out, because your anxiety for me, is actually the thing I'm most worried about. I'm not worried about him falling back in love. I'm more worried about your anxiety. What do you think, Cheryl? Yeah, I think that's beautifully put. And I would commend this writer in that it sounds like she's doing a reasonable job of managing the anxiety, but we're both trained clinicians and we know a regular person who doesn't suffer from dramatic anxiety at the best of times is going to be made anxious by the threat of the loss of the relationship. So self-care, absolutely. And It's a simple thing I'm about to say, and I hope it's not simplistic. I don't intend it to be, but I would invite, encourage her to invite her sweetheart to listen to this podcast in terms of a couple of things, to perhaps hear from you and I how normal and typical it is to have these well-expressed feelings. He, I believe it's a he, I'm not sure if there was a gender pronoun or not, that he's expressing, which is I'm nervous. I feel maybe more like a sister family toward you than lover and excitement. And he talked about two peas in a pod or or the, you know, the two into one kind of connection. And that he's not broken, selfish, or unusual to feel that. In fact, he's dramatically, firmly in a normal realm in long-term relationship where that sort of communication, family, cooperation, what I call intimacy on the three keys to passion is still pretty strong. But the thrill is next to non-existent and the sensuality has not been tended to. And it's that I don't feel in love. He's neither broken nor wrong. It's very common. And also hearing about how few people have great sexual passion over time and that it can be recreated doesn't mean that will be the right journey for this person, as you and I both know. The right journey for that person might be to conclude, hopefully in a loving, kind, and gracious way, a long-term relationship. But ultimately, I'm a hopeless romantic. So my preference is where people plunge into something like the work you do, the work I do, et cetera, and say, okay, can we learn and experiment and explore to create novelty and find ways to appreciate each other again, which may sound weak, but it's not. I've got incredible videos from some of the couples that have moved from nothing and on the edge to really finding, creating and committing to creating a relationship that is worthwhile. But so normal, beautiful letter, such a beautifully expressed conundrum that so many people listening to this podcast are saying, other than a few minute details, that's us as well. That's us as well. What can we do? Don't give up and, and, and you know, do some work. But sorry, go ahead. I was going to say it's actually really quite intimate to say, I think that I might have fallen out of love. Yeah. I mean, lots of people actually keep those thoughts to themselves. So, you know, congratulations on saying that. Mm-hmm. And let's imagine that he is listening at this precise moment mm-hmm. now that really you do need to get more in contact with your own feelings. Mm. And 
you can't, I say this over and over again, you cannot choose which feelings you're going to get in contact with. The first ones are going to be angry feelings, and that is okay. It's okay to be angry. And in fact, you know, it can, to actually say what you're angry about is a very intimate thing to do. It's, it's really easy to tell your partner, you know, what beautiful blue eyes they've got, you know, the fact that they drive you up the wall and you're not just going to say it in that sort of kind of comic kind of way, but you're actually going to say the very things that drive you up the wall, even though, you know, it's not a very nice and loving thing to do is intimate. Mm. And you've got to start with the difficult stuff first. And it's going to be painful, but then you'll find that hope will materialise. And then some of the positive feelings will begin to come back as well. Mm -hmm. I hope that's been helpful. Mm -hmm. I think it's brave and very loving that he has chosen to express this instead of just leave. It's over. I'm done. I don't love you anymore. This is a really loving act and a very brave one. Or just staying on to the point that you just grind each other to the bone, so to speak. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I have to ask you, Cheryl, as my witness on The Meaningful Life, what makes your life meaningful? Chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) The moments where I show up in my own life, whether it's with chocolate, whether it's with a kiss, whether it's really being absorbed. I live on the ocean and uh, there's wildlife and sometimes the orca move through our bay. Or the simplest thing, I'm a tea aficionado. So I have about 40 different loose leaf teas. And when I brew one according to the instructions and really be with it, meaningful life is in a meaningful moment as we've talked about today, of really experiencing, including the tough stuff, as you've so elegantly brought forward, the emotions, to really experience the anxiety or the anger, the joy, the simple contentment is a meaningful life, rather than racing from thing to thing to try to bring meaning in from the outside. And how many meaningful moments do you think you have in a a day, just out of interest? Hmm. When I'm on meditation retreat or in a particularly easeful open state in my workaday, live-a-day life, dozens, maybe hundreds, because I'm noticing them. In a grumpy, I've got too much to do, overwhelmed, oh my goodness, the cat threw up on the Tibetan rug again. Um, uh, Boy, they sure feel like meaningful moments of irritation or frustration or overwhelm. But I would say... Very few that I'm paying attention to, you see. Every moment's meaningful, but if we're on another channel and we haven't switched it to the channel that's happening here and now, we don't experience them. So I love that question. It's going to leave me contemplating today. Thank you for it. Unfortunately, this is where the conversation has to end for most people. But if you become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, all the details will come in a moment, you can stay with us because I'm going to be giving three myths and we're going to blow those. And actually, staying with the Buddhist idea, we're going to think of the Four Noble Truths and see how the Four Noble Truths might help us have a better and more loving and connected relationship. So we're going to delve into the deeper side of uh, Buddhism. And I'm also going to hear from Cheryl about three things she knows deep down to be true. So don't miss it. You can... uh, become a supporter with Patreon. You can become a subscriber on Apple or on Spotify. However you do it, please do join us. 
You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.